I'm, I'm happy to be Colossians. You'll be pleased, perhaps, to hear we'll finish chapter one today. And so um, pray for me. I've got about five verses to be able to get through. So uh, this indeed, um, for those of you keeping count, the 12th sermon in the book of Colossians to get through chapter one. I do intend to pick up speed just a little bit. Don't get too excited, but uh, uh, we should probably not take 12 sermons to get through chapter two. Um, but I trust God is going to use even the slow pace in which we proceed through this wonderful book to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. And so I do hope you have your Bible open here into Colossians chapter 1. And why don't we start here in verse 24. Once again, I invite you to hear now the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And now, Father, we pray for help as we consider your word this morning. We ask that you would give us an understanding of it and a heart that delights in it, that your spirit would come and rest upon us in great power, that he might lead us into your truth, that we might be made more like Christ. In particular, I pray that we might even have a renewed vision for our life, a renewed vision for our church, as we consider these words and the exhortation that they are to us. And so we pray for help as we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It was in 1628 that John Bunyan was born. John Bunyan would uh, live uh, much of his adolescence and his young life uh, living in sin and open rebellion to God, and yet would give himself, uh, after being converted to Christ, uh, uh, eavesdropping on a group of women, which he would say gossiping about Jesus. It would bring about his radical conversion. He said they spoke as if they were in heaven. And he was converted to Christ and became a Baptist preacher or as what they would call in England at this time, a nonconformist. The problem with being a Baptist preacher in England in, 16, in the 1600s was that it was illegal. That Baptists were not allowed to preach the gospel. And so uh, they warned Bunyan again and again, if you continue to preach the gospel, you will be arrested. Such a threat was particularly difficult to John Bunyan because he was extremely poor. Uh, he had a wife, four daughters, and when he was working, they barely had enough to eat. And to be in prison would have brought unbelievable hardship upon his family. And yet Bunyan continued to preach. And he was indeed arrested. And he would indeed spend the next 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel. Leaving his wife Elizabeth and their four girls, the youngest of which was blind, in extreme poverty. And Bunyan thought often of the difficulty that his family was enduring Apart from him, he thought about his family, girls growing up without him, and 
Elizabeth having to care for them without uh, him being around to, to earn income for them. He writes of this turmoil rather famously. In fact, after his family was able to come and visit him in prison, he wrote of their departing with these words. The parting of my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am fond of these great mercies. The great mercy is just a reference to his family. In other words, I'm not, it's not only because I'm fond of my family, he says, but also because I have I've often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child. Oh, the thought of the hardship I have thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. Oh, I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. What's even more astonishing is that there was an arrangement that Bunyan can leave prison at any moment. He, if you will, held the keys to his prison door. All he had to do was tell the guard stationed that he would no longer preach the gospel and he can leave that day and go home and be with his family. Of such a prospect, Bunyan would write, I can make you this promise. If I am free today, I will preach tomorrow. In this way, I think he reminds us of the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, writes his letter of Colossians from prison for preaching the gospel. In fact, the last words of the book of Colossians are, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my chain. I'm in prison for the gospel. Paul, like Bunyan as well, wouldn't stop preaching. He wouldn't because it was a commission that was given to him by God, as you see here in verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What is the stewardship? Well, here it is, to make the word of God fully known. Since I'm a steward of the word of God and my stewardship is to make the word of God fully known. And in the verses to follow, he expounds what that looks like, what this gospel ministry looks like. And you might be tempted in light of the text which we're going to consider this morning. You might think, well, great for you, Paul. That's wonderful. Or, or maybe you might even think, well, well, great for people like Paul, like you, pastor. Good for you. Uh, perhaps you've received a stewardship very similar. Uh, and yet I would suggest to you, before you kind of excuse yourself from the, um, the authority of this passage before us, I, I, I would like to uh, suggest to you that not only Paul or a, a professional pastor has been given such a stewardship, but that you too, Christian, have been given a stewardship of the gospel. You are a steward of the gospel. And I think these words apply to you just as they do to me or anyone else. And my hope and my prayer this week, in fact, is that even considering these words, you would get a, a new vision a new uh, of an aspect of your life. You would get direction to your life. Certainly, I pray that this would provide direction for our church and reconfirm our convictions, not just this church, but for Love and Soul Baptist Church, which will, God willing, begin in just a number of months, that we would uh, be guided by the truths that are in front of us, of this gospel ministry to which Paul says he is a steward of. And so I have four points for us this morning. Uh, the message, 
the means, the purpose, and the power. That will be our outline as we work ourselves uh, verse by verse through these uh, verses. The message, the means, the purpose, and the power. And for those of you who are keeping time this morning, my first point will take about half my sermon. So do not fear as things uh, seem to drag on a bit, perhaps, in this first point. So we begin by thinking about the message in which Paul here is uh, exhorting us to proclaim. Once again, I direct your attention to verse 25, in which he says, of which, that's referring to the church, which he was talking about verse 24, of the church I became a minister according to the stewardship uh, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says, I have a stewardship to make God's word fully known. In other words, Paul is explaining, I'm not a scholar in search for truth. I'm not a philosopher asking questions. I'm not even a preacher trying to impress you with my opinions or my sense of humor or, or my great intellect. I am here. My life is about making God's word known. In fact, how, how known? Well, he says, I want it to be fully known. Fully known. In other words, Paul says, I'm going to teach the entire counsel of God's word. You say, well, what about the boring stuff? Well, yeah, the boring stuff too. What about the confusing stuff? Yep, the confusing stuff. What about the awkward stuff? Yep, we're going to learn that as well. I want to make all of God's word known. I want it to become fully known for you. And such exhortation, I think, provides great help, in particular for those who occupy the pulpit, for those who preach God's word. I think to the, the reminder that our task is to make God's word fully known is to protect us and our church from continually returning to our theological hobby horses. Every pastor has one or a dozen of theological principles and ideas that they long to continue to return to over and over again, and it is making the Word of God fully known that protects us from continually uh, grinding that theological axe, if you will. I appreciate uh, the story that Alistair Begg tells of a Baptist preacher who had a great fixation with baptism. It was always baptism. Every Sunday you learned about baptism. In fact, Alistair Begg uh, uh, preached one morning. He announced his text, Genesis 3-9. Adam, where are you? And then he said, we shall follow three lines. Number one, where Adam was. Number two, how he was saved from where he was. And thirdly, a few words about baptism. Okay, all right. Well, what we want to do, we want to avoid that kind of preaching. And how do we do it? Well, we have a conviction that says, I want, no, I want God's word to be fully known. And this, of course, doesn't simply just apply to what's taking place right now from the pulpit. This applies to Sunday school, and God willing, we'll get back there one day. This applies to youth ministry and men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and our community group ministry. This applies to our one-on-one one another conversations with each other that we want God's word to be fully known. Now, I've already shared, I think these, these words have application to all of us who follow Christ, but I do think they are particularly important for those who seek to preach God's word to his people, for pastors, if you will. And so you might ask, why is it we as a church preach consecutively through books of the Bible? Why is it that it is our standard practice to switch from Old Testament to New Testament? Why is it that the, the regular diet from the pulpit uh, in this church is what is called expository preaching? That is the point of the text is the point of the sermon. Why is it that we give ourselves to this? Well, it is simply because we want God's word to be fully 
No. Fully no. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Then feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And so it is out of our act of love to our Lord Jesus Christ that we seek to feed God's people. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who would say often and with great forcefulness, the health of the church depends upon the health of the pulpit. I believe that to be true. Which is why, as you know, and I've shared with you before, about half of my pastoral time is spent studying and crafting sermons so that I might be able to present to God's people the word of God in its fullness. We are not going to do what Spurgeon warned us of, uh, little sermonettes for Christianettes, he said. No, uh, we want the word of God to be fully known, and it is the great privilege of my life to be able to do so. You say, well, why? Why do we want the word of God fully known? Well, because the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. The, the word of God is the instrument of God's call. The word of God is the occasion of God's regenerating power. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is like a fire. The word of God is like a hammer which breaks the rock into pieces. The word of God is where we hear the voice of the Lord and we know the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare. We know that countless people have declared that a single line from the Bible has changed their lives, has sustained them in turmoil, has compelled them in, in, in trial, has brought them, yes, even face to face with God himself. We know that the grass withers and the flowers will fall, but the word of God will stand forever. And so we want to know it. We want to know it in its fullness in fact, Paul elaborates what he speaks of here in verse 26 when he writes the mystery, right, the word of God fully known, that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed in his saints. Paul will refer to the word of God as God's mystery. He'll do so again in verse 27 and thirdly in chapter 2 and verse 2, the mystery which he will talk about. Now when Paul uses this term mystery, he does so in other books by the way, He's not, it's, it's not a mystery in the sense that it's some type of puzzle to be solved or some secret to be discovered. He calls it a mystery because it has been hidden. It's a hidden truth. See that? It's a mystery hidden that's now revealed. It was hidden because it was so wonderfully inconceivable to human reason and planning. And though hinted at throughout Scripture, as we've seen when we studied the Old Testament, the mystery was not fully known until God disclosed it. You say, well, what is this mystery? Well, he tells us here in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the mystery is Christ. The, the mystery is what Jesus has done, who he is and what he has done in order to redeem sinners. The mystery is none other than the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life in our place and died upon the cross 
in our stead and bore the wrath of God upon himself in order to pay for our sin debt as our substitutionary sacrifice and three days later rose victoriously from the dead to prove that a payment has been received to demonstrate he has power over life and death and that we are united to God by faith in Christ. That's the mystery. The mystery is Christ. And it is a mystery in which God now, as you see here, Paul uh, focuses on this, doesn't he, in verse 27, a mystery that is to be announced to the nations. To them God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the the, the nations, the ethne, that that this, this Christ, this gospel, includes them, that they are part of the people of God. Now Paul will write something very similar in the book of Ephesians, and in chapter 3, He writes, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers in the promises of Christ Jesus. Now that that indeed was a truth that was hidden from God's people that is now revealed in Jesus. I mean, the Jews were the ones who received the covenants. The Jews were the ones who received the law. The, the promises of God were given to the Jewish people. The Messiah was coming for the Jewish people. And yet now we're told it, it, through the gospel that the Gentiles come into the people of God on equal footing with the Jewish people. That the Messiah is for them too. That they receive the same promises. That they look forward to the same inheritance. So the mystery in some sense is that not only has Jesus come, but that Jesus has come for the nations. That there's this worldwide ingathering into Christ, into God's people, into this Jewish Messiah. This is a theme into which Paul will return, as you see in chapter 3 and verse 11, when he writes, Here, that is the church, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All races united into one people. And of course, this is a mystery that he tells us in verse 26 was hidden for ages and generations. In other words, this has always been God's plan. His plan, uh, a plan that's been hidden for ages. I, I mention that just in passing because there is a popular Christian belief uh, promoted by the Schofield Study Bible that Jesus came to establish a Jewish nation and to rule over a Jewish people upon a Jewish throne. And it was only once he was uh, rejected by the Jewish people then he went to, if you will, plan B and turned to the nation. It seems like Paul is directly confronting, uh, refuting such an idea when he says, no, that Christ for the nations has been God's plan that's been hidden from ages past. It's not some plan B. It's not some fallback plan. This is what God has been planning to do from the ages past, that all of us will be united in Jesus, or as Paul says, and I think stunning language there in verse 27, Christ in you. Christ in you. Often Paul will talk about you in Christ. Rarely will he speak about Christ being in you. And so I remind you, Christian, this morning that it's not Christ is around the corner or Christ is nearby, but Christ is actually in you, in you. You say, what kind of Christ is this? Well, we've already seen in our study of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. And he's in you. 
He is the creator of all things. He is the author of all life. And he is in you. He is the head of the church. And he is in you. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And he resides in you. He is the one who is preeminent over all things. And he is in you. He is the one that gives you peace. He is the one that gives you purpose. He is the one that gives you joy. He is the one that gives you life. He is the the one who is only good and is all-powerful And he is in you. He is in you. Talk about living with a new perspective. That Christ lives in me? Yeah, he does. Talk about having a new energy in life and a new direction in life. How stunning is it to to be reminded that Jesus didn't simply die in order to deal with our sins. He died in order that he might take up residence in you. Christ in you. Which of course, as you see in verse 27, leads to the hope of glory. In other words, there is a glory coming. And if you're a Christian, you ought to be hoping in it. I hope for this coming glory, not because of my own goodness... But, uh, but because Christ is in me, that he so, in other words, so fully represents me that it, ca- it cannot be more certain that the, the coming glory will be given to me because Christ resides within me. And this is the truth that we must proclaim, that we must live out and we must declare. For you know what Paul says here in verse 28? Him we proclaim. Paul says, I proclaimed Christ. Proclaim Christ. That's what I'm about. So I, I don't know if you recognize, there was, I think on Friday, a, uh, a nationwide kind of religious, interfaith religious service in the National Cathedral, and a great deal of talk about social reform, and things of that matter, and certainly um, there's a role for that in our faith. But let's understand that our faith is not primarily about social reform. In fact, our faith is not primarily about this particular doctrine or about that particular doctrine. Our faith primarily is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus is our message. Who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Paul says, I want to teach the word of God in its fullness, which means what? I'm going to proclaim him. I'm going to proclaim Jesus Christ. Verse 28 again. Him we proclaim. Right, so how do you know if the word of God is being proclaimed? Well, you know, in part at least, when Jesus is being proclaimed. And so when you come and you sit under the teaching of God's word, you want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to come and get little moral nuggets. We don't want to come and, and, and hear, uh, you know, sermons about how to conquer your giants and, 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 or do this or do that type of sermons. We want to hear about Jesus. We want to point to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Him we proclaim. And so when you come to church service on Sunday mornings and you're driving around uh, over and you, and you begin to talk to your family, I wonder what we'll learn about today. Well, I'll tell you the answer. I don't care what Sunday it is. Jesus. Hey, we're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to do that again next week? Yep. We're going to talk about Jesus next week. What about the week after? Yep. We're going to talk about Jesus. And it doesn't matter, as you've noticed, whether we're in the book of Colossians or the book of Luke or we're in the book of Genesis. We're going to talk about Jesus, for Jesus has told us that all Scripture points to him. 
And so Paul would say to the Corinthian church, I have resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I like the fact that Paul says, I resolved this. This is an act of will in the apostle. This is my resolution. I'm, I'm, I have determined not to do this. I have determined not to do that. I have determined to point to Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. And I, I would simply ask that if you are going to pray for your church and if you are going to pray in particular for your pastors, that you would pray for this. That we too would have an unwavering resolution that we are going to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And I say that as I look around in this great country of ours and I see seemingly countless churches and ministries and universities and denominations and parachurch organizations that once started with Christ and somehow have lost their way. As you know, I am an alumni of the great Duke University and as you walk upon that beautiful campus, Jesus is everywhere. There are plaques of Jesus, there are statues of Jesus, there are, there are glorious medieval cathedral built in honor of Jesus. Jesus is everywhere on the campus of Duke University except in the classroom. It's totally forgotten. And it's just not my alma mater. You think about the Salvation Army, once an incredible gospel proclaiming ministry now have lost their way. You think about the YMCA, once an effective evangelistic ministry, now it's the gym. And how many churches and how many organizations have started to proclaim Jesus and have lost their way. And so let's ensure that Hamilton Baptist Church is not among them. Now for 131 years, let's see if we get to 132 years still talking about Jesus. Pray for us. I appreciate what John Wesley said to Thomas Koch, who was uh, tra traveling from England to the newly formed United States of America in order to help the Methodists there. And John Wesley on the dockside, his last words to Thomas Koch were simply, offer them Christ, Thomas. Offer them Christ. Him we proclaim. Now my question for you, Christian, is do you proclaim him? Do you proclaim Jesus? Do others know what you believe about Jesus? Because I think they probably know what you believe about abortion. I think they probably know what you, you believe about the last election. Okay? I think they probably know what you believe about your favorite baseball team, which, of course, is the Dodgers. Right? Do they know what you believe about Jesus? Him we proclaim. How do we do so? We now pick up speed as we consider, secondly, the means of promoting this message. How do we go about this? We'll read on in verse 28. We read, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We make the word of God fully known through a negative and a positive dimension, through teaching and warning. Paul says we warn everyone. Maybe your Bible says admonish everyone. We correct what is wrong. Part of this is correcting. You say, is that really necessary? Correcting sounds so divisive. It sounds, it sounds negative. Do we really need to correct? Many, many churches have, have decided, no, we don't need to correct. There, there is no warning. There is no caution. There is no admonition, just all you get is uh, feel-good sermons uh, week after week. Now, you may be thinking, I wish we had a feel-good sermon, okay, um, every once in a while, perhaps, maybe one day you will, all right? But I, listen, I like the positive, too, uh, um, but I, I think we need to let the Bible be our guide. We need to be negative in this sense. We need to warn people what is wrong. 
and what is danger. We need to, there needs to be a negative aspect and a, a negative warning for a positive reason. If you, I, I used to, until a couple years ago, I, I kept bees. And because we live up on top of the mountain with the bears up there, uh, our bees were surrounded by 10,000 volts of electricity. And I had signs upon that electrified fence, and touch this and you will feel an intense sensation. Or you say, well, that's very negative. Why would you put up such a negative sign? Well, I put it up for a positive reason. I'm trying to help people. I'm trying to help them avoid the trouble that will come upon them. And so we must warn and admonish one another. In fact, the literal understanding of this warning word here, or admonishment, is to straighten out, to correct people where they have gotten off course. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me, for now, uh, more than two decades following Jesus, I have learned that discipleship is not really a straight line. That there are traps, and there are temptations, and there are trials and, uh, and sometimes we falter and sometimes we get off course. And so we need to, get, we need to be warned. We need people in our lives to say, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't think that. Don't read that. Some of you uh, perhaps experience this driving in your car, this, this, this type of ministry of admonition. You, some of you have the car that, that now if you get too close to the, the, the lane, the, it starts you know, flashing lights and vibrating and it feels like the wheels are going to fall off and and all sorts of craziness is going on, and you say, well, what is the car doing? Well, the car's trying to keep you alive, okay? And it's trying to keep the people next to you alive. You're saying the car is, if you will, admonishing you, hey, you're not driving very well right now, and let's straighten this thing up. Let's get back in our lane. Is that a pleasant sensation? No, it is not. If you've ever been in one of those cars, it drives you crazy, okay? But it might be helpful, right? And so admonishment is not pleasant, but it's helpful. You say, Pastor, what are you doing? I'm trying to keep you in your lane. I'm trying to keep you on track. I'm trying to keep me on track. I mean, how many people have you spoken to in your Christian life whose life is an utter mess, and they always say the same sentence, I don't know how I got here. How did I get here? Well, I'll tell you how you got there, one step at a time, just a little bit off course. And so we need this ministry of admonishment. I remember when I was 19 years old, a Christian for maybe a year or two by this point, and I was reading my Bible ravenously every day, hours. I would read my Bible hours a day. I couldn't get enough of it, and yet I was living in open, flagrant, godless sin until one day I received, as a 19-year-old, a note in the mail from a friend of mine who said, Stephen, you're out of line. He said, Stephen, you cannot live one foot in Christ and one foot in the flesh. And that note, I'll tell you, took great courage and great love, and it changed my life. It changed my trajectory. It changed my Christianity. I needed to be warned. And sometimes we need to be warned. And I thank God for those in my life who have the love to rebuke me and to warn me when I need it. I wonder, do you have anybody in your life who watches out over you? Are you willing to take a word of warning and not get defensive. We need it. We need to receive it. We need to give it. We need to do so in love. Paul would write to the Ephesian, uh, write of the Ephesian elders, I never, uh, I never failed night and day to admonish you. He says, I'm doing this night and day, all the time. I'm admonishing you with tears. With tears. So when we do it, we don't do it heavy-handed. We don't do it holier than thou. We, we do it like a big brother calling a younger brother back uh, to the family. 
And so there is a warning. That's part of what we do. Well, he also says there in verse 28, we are teaching everyone. I don't think much needs to be said about this other than the fact that we need to learn the content of Scripture. We need to know what the Bible says. And this is what Paul's already done in Colossians chapter 1. He's told us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. So we're going to get to chapter 3. He's going to tell us how we should live in light of who Jesus He's going to instruct us. We need this. We need to learn Scripture to know who God is, to know what He's doing, to know how to follow Him, to know how to become more like Him, to grow in our love for Him. And so we need warning and uh, teaching. Now, once again, you might say, well, that certainly sounds like the pastor's job. And certainly it is the pastor's job. But before you check out, I want you to turn over one page to Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to see that Paul's not simply writing about himself or me or Cody or Josh. He's writing about you, Christian. For he says in verse 16 of chapter 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, here it is, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Does that sound familiar? Teaching and admonishing one another. Look back in our, our passage, verse 28 of chapter 1. Uh, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So this is your ministry as well as it is mine. This is why we emphasize in our context church membership. And when one joins Hamilton Baptist Church, they make vows to one another as we make vows to them in part that we will do this for one another. We will teach each other. We will warn each other. We will admonish each other and as we want to live in a community that seeks after our, each other's godliness. We do this when we sing together. We, we're, we're teaching one another, admonishing one another. We, we do this when we pray together in our Bible studies, our community groups, and our conversations. And we need to do it with all wisdom, as Paul tells us, for it requires great wisdom. Well, you might ask, why are we doing this? Okay, so we want to make God's word fully known, the message of Christ, chiefly. We do so through admonishing and teaching. But why? Well, thirdly, we turn to the purpose. And we find that the purpose is our Christian maturity. It's something that Cody's already prayed for us as he began our service. As you read on in verse 28, and we read this great purpose statement that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Christian maturity is the goal. Growth, discipleship. That we might become more and more like our older brother that Paul would write in Romans 8 and verse 29, I believe it is. That we be conformed to the image of Jesus. Christian maturity. Now, Christian maturity is kind of like physical maturity. It does not happen overnight. Okay? It happens sermon after sermon, Bible study after Bible study, conversation after conversation, acts of service after acts of service. It, 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 it happens as we discuss our faith with one another and what we're learning and, and, and how we're applying and what we're reading. This is a lifelong process, becoming mature in Jesus. There is no quick fix to it. Like the late night diet commercials, you know, with the lady who stands up on your television and says, you know, I lost 35 pounds in 10 days uh, by eating ice cream and taking this pill. And uh, you can too, right? And, uh, you know, the first thousand people will buy the pill for $100, you know, and watch the, you know, whatever it is. And, and what, 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 who would do that? A thousands of people would do that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on your television. People lining up to buy that pill. Why? Because they want the overnight fix. They want it done now. Let's get this taken care of now. Let's do this today. And I'll tell you, when it comes to spirituality, you're going to find very similar ideas. You know, this four-week sermon series, turn your marriage from a, from a mess to bliss. Just listen to these four sermons, right? Buy this book, and overnight you'll find the secret is to spiritual advance. 
right? I'm telling you, there are no steroids for your soul, There is no such thing as instant Christian maturity. Spiritual maturity comes from a daily, yearly, lifelong pursuit of Jesus. I don't know who said it, but I'm glad he did, that the Christian discipleship is like a long walk in the same direction. Oh, what a beautiful picture for your Christian life, a long walk in the same direction. Not a sprint, not even a run, just a long walk with Jesus. As you walk together, and what great progress can be made if you have that daily commitment with Jesus. Let me encourage you by saying don't grow impatient in your Christian maturity. Enjoy the walk with Jesus. Don't get so uh, distraught over where you need to be. Just rejoice in the steps that you're taking with him. Keep at it. Be committed to him. It is worth living for this maturity in Christ, it's worth giving your life for to see it happen in other people's lives. So many people, and I, I'm, I'm sure many of us are living for things that this world says, you ought to live for this and you ought to live for that. And once we find it, once we get it, we find it's empty. It doesn't, it doesn't offer what it promised us. I appreciate the honesty of uh, Tom Brady, who I, I believe is playing football this afternoon. After winning his third Super Bowl, I don't know how many he has, but he has at least three, earning millions of dollars, Tom Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, I reach my goal, my dream, my life, and I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. End quote. And I would agree, it's not. Winning a Super Bowl is not worthy of your life. Maturity in Christ is. It will not leave you wanting. It will not leave you thinking, God, it has to be something more than this. In fact, this is the goal for everyone. As you notice, it's not just for a few people. Paul says everyone, everyone, the word everyone is mentioned three times in this verse. We warn everyone, we teach everyone, we long to present everyone mature in Christ. This is mission of the church extends to everyone. We deny entry to Christ to no one, including you sitting here today or perhaps you watching on our live stream. I tell you, even now that Christ would receive you, right now, this very second, whether you're sitting in a pew here or sitting on a couch at home, if you would call out to faith in Jesus Christ right now, if you would bow your knee to him in belief and repentance, He will save you. You will this very moment be adopted into God's family, forgiven of all your sins, and you will become an heir to the new world in which he will create. He would do this this very moment as you recognize he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you yield your life to him as Lord. This is for everyone, Paul says. Of course, if we're going to accomplish this gospel ministry, we're going to need power. So I turn to lastly and quickly, The power in which Paul speaks, for he writes in verse 29, for this I toil. This I toil. And Paul did toil. Paul was not lazy, as you know. In fact, if you just read the book of Colossians, you discover that Paul was admonishing and teaching and preaching and rejoicing and suffering and striving and serving and presenting and laboring and struggling and fighting and delighting. He's an active guy. For this I toil, he says. This 
this cause that I'm living for, this stewardship given to me by God, it's a battle to fight, Paul says. It is a race to run, and I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to give it my life. Perhaps Paul offered the same prayer that Dwight Moody prayed on that one occasion, uh, that bedtime prayer that Dwight Moody famously said, rolling into bed, he prayed, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. I imagine Paul must have uttered that, don't you think? So Paul says, as I toiled. And yet, no, notice his toiling was empowered by God. For he writes on in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Many people today will speak to you of God's power. Being strengthened by God. And they'll say, well, you could get God's power if you attend this conference. Right? Or you could get this power, God's power if you recite this obscure prayer every, every morning. Or you get this power if, if you have a quiet time in this manner. Paul says, I know the power of God, too. I've experienced it. But I don't know the power of God through some isolated meditative activity. I don't know the power of God by getting off by myself and just... Uh, 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 focusing in on myself. I know the power of God when I give myself away for the good of others. Notice the strength that Paul's given is only given as he toils. As he goes about Christ's work, he then experiences Christ's strength. And so I ask you, Christian, would you like to know the power of God? Would you like to be strengthened by God Almighty? Well, then get to work. Right? You want to know God's power? Plant a church. You want to know God's power? Right? Adopt a child. You want to know God's power? Go to the nations. You want to know God's power? Work the nursery. Right? When we have that one day. You want to know God's power, young people? Resolve to honor your parents. Resolve in your heart, I'm going to love my sibling as myself. And in that resolution, in that work, you will start to experience the power of God working in you. In other words, do not sit around waiting for God's power and then say, okay, now I'll get to work as I toil. God, strengthen me for the work he called me to. And so I pray as I conclude, let Hamilton Baptist Church give ourselves to making disciples and serving his church, and loving our community in the name of Jesus Christ. Let us give ourselves to the work of the gospel through the power of God that we indeed might present one another mature in Christ. Our Father, we're thankful for this charge and this challenge. We pray that we would be motivated to rise to it. We long to be used by you, long to be molded by you, long to know you better through your word. We're so thankful for the Bible. Not simply because we love the Bible, though we do, but we are chiefly thankful for the Bible because it makes you known to us and tells us how we might follow you, that we might become mature in Christ, or as Isaiah put it, oaks of righteousness. May we become even more so today as we take these steps with Jesus. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.